any heartening to have the opportunity to share into or to be able to listen into people's practice to receive and listen to your individual experiences as this retreat's unfolding. I feel certain that this is an auspicious current for the world that we live in. So for many of us, this has not been an easy process. This was important. Important purification. And allowing for many moods, tendencies, habits of distraction, compulsion, hurriedness, drowsiness, agitation, etc. Allowing any of these moves to be received, allowing their calls to be truly heard, not just reacted to. The name Avalokiteshvara, or Kuan Yin, in Chinese translation means that compassionate one who listens to the sounds of the world. Doesn't say the one who reacts to the sounds of the world. It's overwhelmed by the sounds of the world. Who listens to? And we all have tendencies to to react, to be overwhelmed. The whole purpose. of what's called a dispensation, the whole purpose of a dharma tool, the whole purpose of a, what we might call in English, a religious practice, it's a spiritual practice, to help hold us, to help to stabilize us so that we can begin truly to listen to or to understand, to know, to be with the sounds of the world, the sensations of the world, the perceptions of the world, the experiences of the world. As we've mentioned before on other occasions, the the word itself, religion, had a wise etymology. Sometimes we forget about. We assume religion just means things you're supposed to believe. People try to get us to believe and shake their finger at us when we don't believe. The etymology is really gary or religio to different ways of looking at it, but to bring back together what has been broken, to 
reunite, rebind, similar to word yoga, to yoke, to take what has been dismembered to reunite it. The notion of some sort of possibility of healing there. Another uh, more common way of, uh, but also profound way of looking at the word is to just to bind. Which is also, this notion is, is held within the word contemplate. Con, temple, within the temple. Temple had this meaning of template or a boundary within which one would commit oneself to the boundaries. And the little seeker in ancient days might commit themselves to the sacred space. Stay within that. Then within that, being bound. The opportunity to, because by binding oneself, one is not going over here, going over there with every impulse, because, oh, I've I've committed myself to stay here, abiding for the sake of seeing beyond boundaries. A conscious bondage that, that, that looks towards freedom within the true nature of things. Within the template, then, if one's committed to that, one could perhaps notice it the moods of the day that come and go, liking it, not liking Beautiful dawn, color. Maybe the brilliance of the sun, a bit too much. The relief of a cloud, perhaps. A bit too much sun. Ah, relief of dusk. Stillness of night. Sometimes the particular structures, the, the meditation structures, the formal postures, drama tools, like a sitting, a walking, the negum. The vow, the silence. Nothing ultimately sacred. What makes it a sacred boundary? What makes it something that is that is truly in the spirit of uh, the yoga or religio or the path? Is it? A boundary that can help help us then see ourselves, help us reflect on what normally we wouldn't be still enough to notice because we're so busy reacting. So to really reflect on these structures, they're arbitrary to a certain extent. They're not harmful. The sitting posture is pretty natural, it's not harmful. If, if it's too hard on one's joints, we encourage people to explore and find a way of sitting as best you can and the chair. Walking is not harmful. Even the bowing is not harmful, but if one has some health issues to, to go gently with that. But just to reflect that there's no perfect form. What's perfect for this form? Fifteen minutes sitting. Perfect. Fifteen minutes sitting. I don't even get started to an hour. Some people it's too long, some people it's too short. It's that way about everything. Silence too much, silence too little. Bowing's too long, bowing's too short. I don't know if anyone thinks the balance is short. 
book compared to the Chinese monastery. But to really reflect on what is the is the is the point to try to get the perfect form. Guess what? That's trouble. We never get there. Ajahn Chah used to laugh about uh, different monks that would spend their whole monastic life looking for the perfect monastery. Oh, it's really nice here, but the monks aren't really serious. The weather's nice over there, but the mosquitoes are terrible. <laughs> oh, it's lovely up here, but really it's too cold and I get sick. I mean, I can't meditate properly with a sinus infection. And the coast is, is very nice, but you know, it's, those waves have been noisy. <laughs> <laughs> And continually, continually looking for the perfect form. Well, it sounds a bit rougher, but the way that uh, I can tell you like to tell that the Buddha told was uh, once they saw this dog agitated running over here, agitated running over there, be in the thicket for a while, and it would race out. Run over there, couldn't stay there, right somewhere else, and then Buddha gave his half smile. Mm. As always in the scriptures, the nun just says, Oh Lord, what are you smiling about? <laughs> <laughs> Kuan Yin wouldn't have smiled. But, uh, or maybe he would have. But anyway, the Lord says, Well, that poor dog is running, trying to find a comfortable place. He says, Ananda, he's not going to find a comfortable place because he's uncomfortable, not because of the place. He thinks it's the thickest no good. He thinks it's because the plains are no good. He thinks it's because the heat's no good. But that dog has mange. That dog is ill. That's why I can't be comfortable. And he smiled because we're like that. Living beings are racing around, trying to find the right place, the perfect place. And there's no question, I mean, you know, there are nice places, and this is a nice place. <laughs> People can make a big problem about this part. It is said that the, the saints and sages, I mean, I, I, I met this great Chinese master. What do you say to a great Chinese master? So I suddenly found myself next to the great Chinese master who could fly over here, disappear over there, do anything. Awesome practitioner. Sit in the snow, didn't lie down for 70 years, 60 years. What do you say? Do you like it here? <laughs> I got his attention for a second. <laughs> he looked at me like that and he said, I like it everywhere. <laughs> and why is it that he likes it everywhere? Why is it? And we're having a chance on this retreat to, to, with the help of a structure that has its warts, it's to this or to that, but it's, it's still got some mirrors still in place. Structures that can help us see ourselves, see our mood, see our body, see our feelings, see our perceptions, see our thoughts. And this, these wonderful teachings much more significant than the structure that can be shifted and adjusted. But the teachings encouraging us to be appreciatively aware, meaning awareness that it's not just clinical, awareness that is full. That appreciate, what I mean by appreciate is it's willing to fully receive, not just the skin of something, to go into something. Quality, the texture. 
of our moods, of our bodies, of our pains. And I to see these teachings are, are, are encourages rather than speaking over here, rather than speaking over there. They're all teachings that are bringing us more and more here, more and more here, more and more here, and we're discovering something that we many of us have known before. We just keep forgetting. Because in the world, it's so powerful. This dog with mange, it doesn't realize it has mange. So powerful, this fever. We have a fever. We have a fever. And that's not to be made fun of. It's painful. But what we're seeking to, to quench this fever of wanting something, wanting to feel better, wanting to be happy, wanting to find security, wanting to find the right place, wanting to somehow settle, somehow feel okay. And yet in, in our, innocently enough and not really understanding, we, we scurry, we avoid and right after. We're getting an opportunity to, to realize this medicine. We're getting an opportunity not to be ashamed of our sickness, but to, to find out that it's, that it's a most significant Step in the healing process to even acknowledge where there's a sense of dis-ease. What the Buddha called the first noble truth, that which ennobles us to, to recognize that there is dis-ease, there is stress, there's something that just doesn't feel quite right. And that this, this experience needs to be turned to, needs to be noticed, needs to be what's called understood. Rather than crushed, rather than avoided. In and giving us the tools to do this. The, the, the Buddha offered us these, these, these basic teachings in, in centering, in gathering, in calming, in finding unexpected relief in the most simple things, being with a step, being with a breath, most unexpectedly fine that so many people in the last two days have, have described, and I always find this a miracle, always a miracle to myself, and I see it in so many others, that, well, they were so heavy, and it was just so agitated, and, and well, I couldn't really stay, and It's shifting. Not everyone at the same pace and the same rate, but so many times to, to witness this miracle that when appreciative awareness, with within, when things are gathered, when the simplicity of this moment is gathered within appreciative awareness, that there's a transformative balancing, aligning that takes place. That begins to bring at least some stability, some being, some ease. Some people are, are, are getting more uh, useful in this process and experiencing uh, peace, which is lovely. And I encourage us to keep exploring the unexpected, blameless, Reservoir of treasures, of uh, happiness and, and 
refreshing feeling that can come without exploiting anyone, without harming anyone, without taking someone's territory, without fighting. And then notice what what happens as we as we as we start to experience little bits of ease or some ease or deeper ease or peace. As we start to become more truly here, then we have an opportunity to explore this more, and that's what we've been doing today. To actually ask ask the question: Is this is this state? What is it like? Is it permanent? Now, even though this was a, a blameless uh, piece and something that could, relatively speaking, just be healing, the Buddha did not leave this as the end goal in the teaching because it is also conditioned, meaning it's set up. Another way of putting that is different things have to be in place to experience this calm when the mind is unified with, say, breath, or unified with the subtle energy of the body, or unified with some sign that we're steadying the mind with, the heart with, the attention with, like subtle sound. Some people are using the sound of silence in a sound, too, which is another manifestation of breath, the subtle vibratory aspect of breath. And using that to study. But notice that the the um, that, that state is comes and goes. And that if we only want to be in that state that we get we can get irritated. Because something knocks us out of it. A sound knocks us out of it. Or our knee knocks us out of it. Or we blame ourselves, oh, if I could just do it better. Yes, by all means, it's useful to cultivate skills, but it's also useful just to be aware of the limitations. It is, it's like, and it becomes to my mind, it's like the lake I grew up on in Tennessee, Lake Chickamauga. We used to ski, water ski in the summertime. And in the uh, summer's evening, when things calm down, the lake is like glass. So smooth. Beautiful. One just whispers on one side of the lake and sound seems to carry. And to ski on that sort of water is, is marvelous because it's so smooth. You can lean and make amazing moves on the swallow skis. But a tranquil lake is, is, is not a permanent condition. It's to be appreciated when it's there, but it's, it's subject to the storm blowing, to the wind blowing. Even me getting out there with our motorboats, ruining someone else's tranquility. <laughs> so for a long time, I didn't really get it. Even though the Buddha taught it, I didn't get it. Because I would get calm, and then just think, oh, this is where I want to be. This is how I want to be. Get that feeling of things calming down. And without fail, after every single retreat, I used to do retreats where nobody said a word. Nice. First word, I get depressed. Maybe the second word. <laughs> I said, what is going on? <laughs> I'm trying to go to a deeper level, a deeper level. And I don't want to make fun of deep levels. It's, it's, it's very refreshing. It's very wonderful. But it just took a long time to, to kind of get the message. And once I, I, I even got to a point where I had to my mind just finally said, this guy's not getting it. So it gave me a real flashy vision. It gave me a vision of all these ships sinking in the sea and people drowning. So of course, first I was excited because I thought, well, it might be some past life recall. 
Ah, no, we're getting somewhere. Buddy Tillabrook came up. <laughs> He's in his there, right next to the ship, thinking, I think, wait a minute, the small guy on the team. First of all, it must be the Tillabrook, the past life we call I, I was pretty, probably powerful for this in Columbus. And then I realized it was just Buddy. That, you know, a Buddy, a friend was just tapping me and saying, hey, even these calm experiences are also just like that stormy sea, the ship sinking. You try to just cling to that, you're still going to drown. Because what you're clinging to is going to become otherwise. Use it, yes. Wisely. Curious how the mind can just give you a kind of message. Then, little by little, I started to, to get the feeling for, yes, using calm, refreshing with calm, and then using some of that quality of presence of mind to inquire. And especially when your mind is just a little bit, even just a little bit gathered, one can then begin to see this awesome ephemerality, this profound characteristic of existence that the Buddha encouraged us to reflect on deeply, ephemerality, this impermanence, every instant becoming otherwise, Flower, we don't have to go look it up in the encyclopedia. In fact, it's so easy to pass it off. Oh, yeah, okay, but come on, let's get the emptiness. The Buddha taught that you want to understand emptiness, you want to understand not self, the key to that, the profound gateway to that. Can't get there any other way except through that. And start to notice the true nature of what? Let's just start right here. Start with now. This talk. You know, we have talk. And because of the nature of language, one can turn it into, oh God, halfway. It's been a long day. Notice talk, or maybe excited about it, or maybe only discouraged about it. But do we actually contact the suchness of the talk? Notice the, the words that are there and they keep dissolving. The nature of the talk, it vibrates with different words and sentences. keep dissolving to silence. Dissolving into presence. Filled with all kinds of spaces. with all sorts of silence. But oftentimes when you hear the talk, what do we hear? Good talk, bad talk, boring talk, long talk. <laughs> when do we actually and, and this is a, this is part of this main. This is a, it's got a fancy name. Buddha call it papancha. This tendency to have concepts appear to be more than a concept, appear to be the reality. And then it just proliferates. It's like a conceptual proliferation. A punch means concepts that keep making other ones. That are all parading around as the truth. Too much, too little, good, bad. Mean, God, I'm doing it well enough. I'm really doing it well now. Thank goodness. I lost it. <laughs> Who took it? <laughs> that damn bowing. <laughs> I know Kuan Yin wouldn't approve. Forty minutes, that's all right. 
And when we're doing that, how often do we actually know the suchness of those opinions? Good. Horrible. Do we know the vibration that's there and gone? These are tones that are pointing to other things. Okay, the words aren't right, but what it's pointing to is true. Okay? Let's point to something. The birds. There and gone. No, that doesn't count. My breath. Look at a breath. Be with a breath. Rather than, oh, it's a good breath, a bad breath. English breath, a French breath. <laughs> you start to actually, when we're so busy judging whether it's, how it's going, Sometimes samatha, the calming, can get us more into the quality of the easefulness. What if we just change the focus a little bit and also then notice its characteristics? Can we notice as we're breathing or in the subtle manifestation of breath as the sensations of the body are rippling? Can we notice how quickly Moment by moment by moment by moment by moment, the breath is melting, becoming otherwise, shifting, flowing, ebbing, pausing, vibrating. I thought, well, that's really subtle. It is very powerful. Because with our thoughts, that's where we have opinions about, no, this in here is real, it's me and it's hurting. And that out there is real, that's you and you're scary. (laughs) (laughs) And that over there is really where I'm going to find, once I can just get there and get them out of the way. When we get there, the dog running around. Trying to find a comfortable place. Yet we're trying to find a comfortable place. Like me with my ship that was sinking. There were people grabbing onto wreckage that were still sinking. It's poignant, but are we, are we grasping at, trying to find security in that which is continually dissolving? If we use this samadhi, this presence, whatever little bit we have, and start to really notice body and breath and sensations and feelings and moods and thoughts and forms like the way the day is shifting and changing. And the whole texture of our experience, which is really a stream of consciousness, if you look at the moments of seeing consciousness, and blinking the eye and moving the head, and interspersed with moments of hearing and moments of feeling the body and shifting our process and then having a thought, you take the flow, the stream of what our actual experience is. And are we expecting that flow of experience to be where we build a stable house? The Buddha taught, not as a belief, not as that which we need to grasp at, but he taught us as a reflection, as something to look into, that to once we start noticing the ever-changing nature of all the forms of existence, from galaxies to atoms, trees to flowers, humans, dogs, cats, bicycles, to feelings, 
of when we're in contact with a, a form, feeling of liking, not liking, perception, thoughts, moments of experience, very profound contemplation when they actually start to taste that, to experience that in a sustained way. That when we experience a form, or a mood, or a circumstance where there's a pleasant feeling, the pleasant feeling, and there's that contact, sometimes excites the heart and says, yeah, and so then we go. Naively, innocently, lovingly, really, we want to want to camp there, want to identify there. It keeps melting, and so this not only are conditions anicca, not permanent, but they're also dukkha. They're not reliable in and of themselves. They a condition can't in and of itself. Bring us the peace we're seeking, the stability we're seeking, the security we're seeking. It's not to put conditions down. It's not in the nature of a condition to do that. And it's seeing it out of context. When we when we grasp that a condition, it's like when we get the, the rainbow just right. We get lovely rainbows and things in Africa. Light, perfect, most awesome light. Yes, so beautiful. Something in us just would like to stay there forever. We can appreciate it. But what does it mean to think we can keep it? Save mine. We can. Yet in this disease that we have, tinged by papancha, by ignoring, we put our house in this body that this is, this is me, this is mine, in our circumstance, in our moods, in our thoughts. And then we keep, we keep shifting and changing and we feel upset. And if we find the next one, maybe it will work. As we start to do Dharma practice and have the chance to, yes, work with conditions, but start to develop the heart space, start to develop the spaciousness of awareness. And we start to put forms into a context. Forms is that which presents itself. The breath that comes and goes. The feeling that comes and goes. A circumstance that comes and goes. Have an opportunity to actually start to witness. Ah, look at that. It's so shifting and changing. Of course I can't build a house there. How can it's like if you go up to a waterfall, I've had this insight before when I was on a retreat in a forest. I did a year silent retreat once in a forest in a tiny hut and there was a big storm, and this huge flooding, and this big waterfall appeared at our dam. The Chithurst Monastery Waterfall. You know, went up to it. You might call it our waterfall. Then you kind of go up to it. Try taking a bit away. It's, it's to be awesomely appreciated, but it's just a way of talking to call it mine. It's a way of talking to call this me, to call this you. It's a way of encouraging, taking responsibility for our actions and words, but it's still not a conventional way of talking. But when there's a a sensation, a pleasant sensation, and then the mind says, yes, I need that. The word that, peace, or the word that, whatever. We go get that, trying to find security where there's no security. 
So when we watch our breath, we start to be with breath, be with that changing nature, we can get a feeling for contemplating change, for contemplating dukkha. It's unreliable. It, it's, not, it's not a value judgment, but it, it's not to be laid down on because it's continually shifting. The breath, the light, the mood, the circumstance. And when there is relying on it, that's called stress. That's called dukkha. We feel it. And so when we feel that, we're really struggling with something. What, what's going on? Our teacher just encourages not to be ashamed of it, but yourself. Where's the suffering? He'd go around saying, Hin took mine. Which means, Hin, do you see? Took entire and dukkha. The stress, the suffering, the mind, the question. Do you see the suffering? Do you see the suffering in this, in this moment? There might be pain. There might be whatever, which is something that's natural. But can we notice the stress that comes from wishing that it was otherwise? Wanting it to be otherwise. Wanting to get rid of something. Wanting to grasp something. As we start to see and contemplate change and the natural unreliability, the natural way that things keep becoming otherwise, to contemplate the burning that comes from demanding something from conditions that conditions can't give us. A funny story that always uh, comes to my mind as I can says it's just like going up to a chicken, being indignant, saying, why aren't you a duck? <laughs> Why do you look like that? Make that funny noise. Somebody else quacking like they should. Why aren't you a duck? What, what, what do you... You know, what's this chicken to say? <laughs> Chicken's a chicken, a duck's a duck. Conditions are conditions. The nature of the body to get old, to sick, to die. The nature of conditions to become otherwise. When we only see the conditions and we attach to a condition being healthy, then when it shifts and changes, that's it, the end. It's like dying. Oh God, I'm losing. I'm losing. We've infected the whole sense of being into this condition. So that's called birth. And when the condition comes otherwise, it's dying. Oh. We invest in a mood. The mood I've got it. Yes, I see. Oh, finally, I see. I'll put a note up on the board. I see. We do see. And maybe another mood comes that says, I don't see so good. And we think, oh, God, what, what, what went wrong? That balance. <laughs> <laughs> Take birth in a condition, and this condition changes as a sense of dying. What happens if we honor the condition for what it is and realize it's not tied, it's not a thing, part of a mysterious manifesting in the form, dissolving into emptiness, manifesting in the form, shifting, changing. It's not a thing. It's anatta. It's not a self. It's not a separate thing. It's a whole problem. Thought makes it sound like, what do you mean not a thing? I'm here, you're there. That's up there, roof there, floor here. Salt makes it nice and neat and clean. You stay in your territory and I stay in mine. Then when we put our camp somewhere on any condition, whatever it is, we ensure birth and death happen. A natural condition. When one starts to then realize that stress comes from that mistaken identity, mistaken collapsing of our infinite, spacious, 
consciousness into thinking we're a thought, thinking we're just this only this body. Yeah, this body is a manner, is an aspect of of this being. But if we don't recognize the spacious, radiant, luminous context within which this condition arises, then we've missed all the depth. So these spiritual practices are encouraging us, giving us the opportunity to see the nature of conditions, not to hate them. As we work on compassion, it's important to hear these sounds, be with these sounds, mix it with awareness, but to really, in our investigation, start to see them change in their true nature, in their unreliable, on their own, when we just pluck them out of the totality, in their unreliable nature, in their anatta, in their not-self nature. In one of the famous teachings of the Buddha, he said, all conditioned dhammas, all the conditions of life, from the galaxies down to the subtlest salt, all conditioned dhammas are like dreams, illusions, bubbles, shadows, like dewdrops and a lightning flash. Contemplate them. The thing, something's there. We can appreciate the jewels on the lawn. It's conditioned, and when the sun rises, may evaporate. Should we blame the sun? All conditions are like dewdrops, lightning flash, shadows. You can look at a shadow. The shadow is dependent on another condition, another form, and the sun, and the sun or the light which creates the shadow. It doesn't have an independent, separate. Yet when we mistake our thoughts and start believing thoughts as a reality, we start believing all these bits and pieces. So now let's Let's really honor thoughts, what they really are, so that we're not just a slave to them. And in our meditation and contemplation, allow thoughts to keep dissolving, to reveal that they're bubble-like, evanescent, that they're not our possession. They don't say who, what we are. If we practice like this, there's the opportunity when we really see the waterfall of experience and we realize it's not that we have to let go. We realize that we can't really grasp anything. As we start to realize that a little bit, we can relax a little bit. And in not being so busy imagining that we can get rid of something, not being so busy imagining that we really can grasp some security, is the opportunity to then experience where we've always been. Opportunity to experience the spaciousness of our heart. I'll finish with a few words from the Buddha passage on love. Some students came to uh, address the Buddha. They made a long pilgrimage to, to find the Buddha. It was a Brahmin student. His name was Kappa. He said, Sir, of the Buddha. There are people stuck midstream in the terror and the fear of the rush of the river of being. And death and decay overwhelm them. For their sake, sir, tell me where to find an island. 
tell me, where is this solid ground beyond the reach of all this pain? Kappa, said the Master. For the sake of those people stuck in the middle of the river of being, overwhelmed by death and decay, I will tell you where to find solid ground. There is an island, an island which you cannot go beyond. It is a place of no thingness place of non-possession and of non-grasping. It is the end of death and decay. And this is why I call it Nibbana. There are people who in mindfulness have realized this and they are completely cooled here and now. They do not become slaves working for Mara, working for death. They cannot fall into his power. A place of non-possession. Encourages me remaining days to continue to enjoy our blameless qualities of peace, being with the simplicity of things, but to also begin to really inquire into these characteristics of this conditioned world, its changing nature, its not-self-nature. Not to get rid of it, but in our bowing, in our resting, in our being with, to keep making that gesture of offering back to Dhamma, offering back to nature. So I offer these uh, thoughts for contemplation.